Let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, we come before you thanking you for the worship that you have shown to us this morning, for the encouragement that you have given us prayer. Father, that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. Oh God, open our eyes this morning. Give us the truth and clarity. Encourage, inspire us, Lord. By your spirit, awaken us, fill us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, it is birthday week in the Horton house. Uh, in the 31 days from September 20th to October 22nd, we celebrate five birthdays. And this week, we celebrate three of those. Or in these eight or ten days, I guess it is. And, and I, every year during birthday week, I, I evaluate what the Lord has uh, given to me. Uh, the Lord has given me a job. And he has placed into my care the children that he has given to me and the young adults now that he has given to me. And what is my role in that? And I need to know that role and I need to do it well, right? If God has given me a task to do, I need to do the best that I can at that task. And so as a father, I I examine myself regularly. Am I doing what God has called me to do? And oftentimes I, I get distracted and I have to be drawn back with focus to do the task that the Lord has given to me and appointed to me. One of those tasks is to be a, a provider in my family. And that's not just merely bringing home the bacon, as they say. It's not just merely a financial providence that I bring. But it is providing for my family direction. That we are a family who calls ourselves Christian. I'm to provide consistency. In a faithful direction in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Modeling what the young men and young women in my house need to see. As a man that loves Jesus. I need to provide a a temperance in my family. A temperament that is not one that that is angry. Or that is panicking. Or one that is worry Worrisome. But a a temperament that walks faithfully in God's grace. I need to provide an example of studying God's word and then applying God's word daily to my life. I need to provide an example confessing when I've messed up and how to do that appropriately. God has given me a role and asked me, commanded me. To do these things. So each year I look at that. I examine that. And I say God. How can I do this better? Well I'm sure many of you can relate in some way. To what the Lord has called you to do. And how he's called you to. Be a part of a family. Or an organization. Or the church. And be who God has called you. To be. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Esther this morning. 
Esther is a book that is uh, special to many of you. In fact, a church member this morning reached out or spoke to me this morning and said, I have just loved studying the book of Esther, and I'm so glad we get to talk about it this morning. And I have as well. And, and as we walk through the book of Esther, I've prepared over the last two days putting the book of Esther together. And last night, I, I told Stacy this morning, I sat down and I said, there's, there's no way. I cannot get through and do justice to this book of, of Esther. So I'm going to summarize some portions of this, but I would also like for us to let the word of God speak in Esther, because the story is such a powerful story of, of God calling someone to a purpose, and then God providing for that purpose to be accomplished. God calling someone to a purpose, and then that purpose being provided. So what I'm going to do this morning is, uh, if, if you're new to us, thank you for being here. Uh, we're walking through the Bible together. And uh, in, in this month, we've made it all the way through creation. Uh, we've made it through the fall. And we're looking at God's path of redemption that he has put into, into place. That he's, his plan to redeem humanity is, is in the works. And, and here today, there is a, a giant uh, roadblock in that there is a man in the story of Esther today that wants to wipe out all of the Jews here, there, and everywhere because of his hatred for this people. But God has redemption worked through his people, the Jewish people. Uh, and, and that is where we get to when Jesus comes. And this will be early next month. Uh, we start in Matthew. And that is the kingdom come. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But today... We look at the book of Esther, and let me give you a few things about Esther to, to set the table for what we study today. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Most of y'all probably know that. It's the one book of the Bible where the name of Yahweh is not mentioned. The name Adonai is not mentioned. God's name is not in, in Hebrew in the writing in the book of Esther. But God is very active. And the, the intentionality of the author here for us to see the Lord happening or to see the Lord working is very clear. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a quick application of that, and, and that's this. Sometimes in your life, you feel like God is not existent or that he's way far away from you. But let me remind you that God has given to you every single breath that you take. I was praying with somebody yesterday, uh, going through sickness, and, and we prayed, knowing that God is sovereign and ruling over every cell in this person's body. And even when, when maybe it feels like God isn't close, I want to remind you that just because his name isn't in the book doesn't mean he's not there. And just because, because he feels distant to you doesn't mean that he is not very active in everything that's going on in your life. In a book where God's name, where God is not named, his work is clearly proclaimed. Let me say that again. In a book where God is not named, his work is clearly proclaimed. It's not that we don't see God in the book of Esther. It's that he's not named in the book of Esther. 
Let me give you my points, my, um, my purpose of the, the rollout of what Esther is. We're going to walk through the book of Esther almost in its entirety the best we can. And then I'm going to uh, reiterate what I'm about to tell you right now. So these are the grand things that I have gleaned from the book of Esther. Right? And this is what I want you to, uh, to see. Number one, God is involved in every detail. God is involved in every detail. You'll see him bringing favor in the king toward Esther. You'll see him bringing favor in the eyes of the court toward Esther for a purpose. He, he keeps people from sleeping at night multiple times in this book in order to accomplish his purpose. He, he gives people to be in the right place at the right time during, uh, during a murder plot. In order for his purpose to be accomplished. He puts people in the right positions in order to accomplish his purpose. God is doing, God is involved in every detail of this book. That's point number one. Point number two. There are evil plans against his people. There are evil plans. The Lord doesn't make everything easy and happy. And look, that's something that you and I, we know. Life is not always easy and happy, but as we read this morning earlier, God works all things together for what? For good for whom? For those who love him. Now those are, are, are words that are important. Everything doesn't work out good for everyone. Everything works out good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. That's important to remember because God is working it all together for, for his good and we're a part of that. And finally, uh, with the evil plans, at the end of Esther, your sin will find you out. And this is a message we learned. That's from Numbers 32, 23. Your sin will find you out. But if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's going to be a clear message in the book of Esther. Next, so we have um, that God is involved in every detail. There are evil plans and evil people against God's plans. But thirdly, God cares for his people. We're going to see through the, the working out of Esther that all things work together for your good and that the Lord cares for you. First Peter tells us, cast your cares on him. Why? Somebody knows it. Because he cares for you. God is a God who cares for you, even every number, every hair on your head. If he cares for the sparrows that die, he cares for you. How much more, Jesus said, does he not care for you? And finally, God works salvation. He's involved in every detail. There are evil plans and deeds, but he cares for you and he works your salvation. This is a summary of the book of Esther. Esther makes a, a sacrifice to save her own people, pointing to there is one who made a sacrifice for us, isn't there? What's his name, church? His name is Jesus. He made a sacrifice for us to save our lives. There is a such a time as this, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means exactly. But there may be a such a time as this for each of us on a regular basis, that God has called us to a purpose for such a time as this to accomplish, accomplish what God has appointed for us to do. 
And maybe that's a conversation that you need to have with a family member that's lost. Maybe that's reconciliation that needs to be made and you need to initiate that. Maybe that's somebody that you need to invite to church or even present the gospel to this week. But God has put you in his world, in his kingdom for such a time as this. And finally, God works salvation, sometimes in the ways we don't expect it. And, and we're going to look at how that worked with Haman, an evil man, and how God works salvation. So without further ado, the book of Esther starts off in chapter 1. And if you will, open up to chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 12. But let me give you context of what's going on in the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus throws a, a party in which uh, he is drinking and carousing and bragging about all of his awesomeness to all the people around uh, probably much like what we see today, oftentimes. And he calls for his queen to come out, her name is Vashti, to come out and to present her beauty uh, so that he can gloat some more on how great that he is. Well, <clears throat> she refuses to do so. And uh, this makes the king mad because everybody's supposed to listen to me because I'm the king and, and that's who I am. Well, she is uh, then immediately taken out of her, her queenship and cast away because she didn't obey the king. And the king says, we have to make an edict that every woman has to, or every man has to be the head of their house and they can't act like Queen Vashti. We're going to make example of her disobedience. And so he makes this law. And then he casts her away and he says, but I need a new queen. And so what is the best way to find a queen? Guys, what's the best way to find a bride? Well, throw a, make a beauty pageant, right? Because, of course, that's the best way to find the best bride is to have a beauty pageant. Tongue in cheek, of course, that's not true. But this is what the king does. I want the most beautiful woman to be my bride. And so he throws a beauty pageant and invites all the beautiful women to come and compete to be the wife of the most arrogant man around. That's kind of his, uh, that's the prize. You get to be the, the queen. You get to marry the, the most arrogant man in town. Doesn't that sound inviting? This is where we pick it up in Esther verse 2. Are y'all with me this morning? Are y'all with me? All right, Esther chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each one young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. Look, it takes a long time to get beautiful back in the day. It took a lot of work, but after 12 months, they were ready. Verse 13, when the young women went, into the king, uh, went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take from her to the harem to the king's place. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So as you can read from the context, it was a little more than just a beauty contest, but we won't go into detail. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter. And so basically what that is saying is Mordecai's niece, which was, was Esther, uh, was under the care of Mordecai. It was her time to go in. 
She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had been in charge of the women, advised. Now watch this. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins. Now, I want to uh, point your attention to, if you're uh, a regular uh, attender of our church, you know that I use the, the Hebrew word hesed often. Hesed is the word meaning unfailing love. It is enduring love. It is love that does not stop. It is love that continues, and it is the love that God has for his people. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the words there is, uh, the word for favor there is the word for hesed. He, he earned the unfailing love of the king. She earned the unfailing love of the king. And he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of the officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. God's grace and favor are given. Uh, just a, a quick story for you that we were, we're reminded of God's grace and favor. Uh, there was a young man uh, named Grayson this week who uh, came sick, and I sent out a prayer request to you, church. He, he got a, a, uh, a virus, and it uh, ended up attacking the spinal cord and, and manifesting as meningitis. And um, anyway, God's favor was upon the whole situation. He was able to get care quickly this week. Uh, but as I prayed with, with Chase and Crystal, um, uh, that was, this was yesterday, about it, uh, they were explaining how, how amazing God has been to them through this process. That God's grace brought them to the place they needed to be and the care they received and the way that the things were diagnosed. It was a God thing and the way things all came together. God's grace, God's favor are things that are worked out regularly. And so, Christian, sometimes we just don't recognize them. And, and here, even in this story, we see this is God working a purpose. And he started it with grace and favor in the eyes of the king. Now, uh, let me give you, uh, it's not merely grace and favor. And this is where I want to camp out just for a moment. Throughout history, the church has had a word for this. And it's the word called providence. Providence. Anybody heard the word providence before? When we speak of providence, I go back to how I opened the message today, and that is this. God has called me to provide care for my children. As a husband-to-be, Peyton, God is calling you to provide care for your bride-to-be. This is what God is doing for us. He is appointing us to a position to provide care. Uh, you can think of a caregiver who helps someone who's sick. And some of you are doing that even now. God is, has appointed someone to be a provider. And this, that's the root word for providence. And uh, I have a, a book about that thick on God's providence that, that Belinda gave to me. It's a fantastic book. But it's rooted uh, deeply in the verse we read. And I'm going to read it one more time. It's from the book of Romans chapter 8. Because I want you all to remember this, okay? 
God has a plan. God has a plan, and He is going to provide every detail and every need to accomplish that plan. This is the book of Esther in one sentence. God has a plan, and He will provide every need in order to accomplish that plan. Let me read to you from Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for his what? For his purpose. Let me keep reading. It's not just for today, church. This is the beauty of God's word. It's not that he's just doing this for us today. It's like, Anya, it's not just today for you. Watch when this starts. For those whom he foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, this is eternity past. This is God before the world was created. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is his plan. This is the destiny of those whom he's called to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn firstborn among many brothers. And he's still working. And those whom he predestined, he also called. God is working his plan. Those whom he called, he justified. He made right in Christ. God is calling his people. And then he's saying, you are made right through the cross of Christ in God's eyes. And those whom he justified, those whom he made clean, those whose debt he paid... He also glorified, meaning he's working salvation in us until the end when we will glorify God in a sinless and perfect state. God is working from eternity past to eternity future, his plan for those who love him. That's a big deal, y'all. God did not wake up today and say, boy, I, I sure hope Miss Gail does the right thing today. If I don't, she's going to mess up my plan. God said, in eternity past, Miss Gail, you're mine. And I'm going to seek you, and I'm going to call you, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to work through you my plan until all is accomplished. This is our God. Somebody say, praise the Lord. This is our God. He is not a God that just juggles things. He's a God who performs his plan. All things work together according to the counsel of his will, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. So let me give you a definition then of providence. Providence, remember, it's rooted in the word provide. God is a God who provides for us all things to accomplish his will. Now, if we go back to Uh, Several hundred years ago, the Westminster Confession defined it like this. I'm going to give you that definition, and then I'm going to give you the easy definition. All right, you ready? The hard ones first. What is God's providence? What is God's providence? God, the creator of all things, does uphold. He does direct. He disposes, and he governs all creatures, all actions, and all things. From the greatest to the least, by his most wise and most holy providence, according to his infallible 
foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his glory and wisdom and power and justice and goodness and mercy. Did y'all catch all that? Let me give you the easy definition that, that I came up with. It's God's provisional care for his people, for his purpose. Let me say that one again. God's provisional care for his people, for his what? For his purpose. God is going to work things together to accomplish his purpose for you because he cares for you, Christian. You are his. You are his. You are not alone. You are not walking through life having to make your own way. God cares and provides every step you take, every breath you breathe. Somebody say, praise the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, cast all your cares for him because he cares for you. More providences to come. Now that we've defined that, I want you to watch it happen as the story plays out. A couple of things going on here. Verse 19, back to Esther. <clears throat> now, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai just happened to be sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, her race. I guess not her race, but her, her, uh, her, her, uh, her family, the Jewish people. As Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, two guys, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is a murder plot. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai as he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So Mordecai uncovers this murder plot. He tells Queen Esther about it. And Queen Esther then brings it to uh, the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both men were hanged on the gallows. And it was what? It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that's important because that's going to be something that's Important later in the story. Then we're introduced to a man named Haman. Who has a hatred for Mordecai. And a hatred for all of Mordecai's people who are the Jews. Why does this happen? Well, uh, let's, let's look at the next section. After this thing, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Son of Hamathada. And advanced him to and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had command, uh, had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did what? He did not bow down or pay homage. When the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And so they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down 
or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with what? With fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. I hate him so much, I want all of his people destroyed. Now, this is the root of where we get to the problem of sin in this story. Hatred had so overwhelmed this man named Haman that he came to a place to where he wanted to murder not just one, take a man's life because he didn't bow down. He wanted to take a man's life because he didn't want to bow down, and not only his, but anybody that was related to him. Let me share just for a moment with you, this is the depth of sin. Sin takes another human being to the place where we say, I am so important that nobody else's life is meaningful unless they do exactly what I want them to do. Now, I would think it probably accurate to say nobody in this room has this level of hatred toward anybody. I sure hope you don't. If you do, let me give you uh, the direction that you, you need to be praying toward. And that is this. The deep sin that is in your soul has a cure. And, and that cure comes by one way. And that comes by repenting of that sin and falling under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We say it this way in our church. Jesus saves sinners that repent. And unless you humble yourself before Jesus and walk away from the power of sin that is urging you to be angry at people and to to stir up hatred in you, unless you confess your sin and walk away from it by the power of the Spirit of God in you, you will be held accountable before God for every for every ounce of hatred that is in your soul. In fact, Jesus even said it like this. He said, if you have hatred in your heart, that is, that is akin to murder. There is a spiritual problem that needs to be resolved. And, Morda, and, and Haman had that spiritual problem. He was a self-centered, self-exalting man, similar to Ahasuerus, which we saw earlier. But what does all that mean for us today? It means this. Uh, when we look back at our, our little picture that we had earlier, that the fall of Adam affected all of us. And in the fall of Adam, we inherited unrighteousness in our soul. And there is but one solution for that, and that is to cry out to Jesus and say, forgive me, Lord, for who I am and make me new. And by God's grace... His spirit begins to work in us. If you you confess your sin and come to him, his spirit begins to work in us and make us new. And make us into a God-following person rather than a self-exalting, a Christ-exalting person rather than an exalter of ourselves. And that is the salvation that, that many in this room have experienced. Amen? God has transformed us from from darkness into life, from self-seeking into Christ-seeking people. So what happens next in this story? Well, um, if we look at chapter 3 all the way down to verse 13, um, Haman goes to the king and says, Look, King, I, I hate this guy. I hate him. 
I despise this man and everybody who's related to him. I want to create a law because these people are all like him too. They're troublemakers. Let's kill them all. They're not worthy to be part of our kingdom. And so letters were sent out, verse 13, by couriers to all the kings and providences with destruction, with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. Young, old, it doesn't matter who they are. Let's kill them all. And so now the law of the land came to be that on a certain day, there was going to be a mass destruction and annihilation of a certain people. Well, what does all this have to do with Esther? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Because Esther is now queen, and she and all of her people have a death sentence placed on their head. And Mordecai knows this. And Mordecai knows that if nothing is done, then all of the people will die. And so when we get to chapter 4, Esther and Mordecai uh, have a discussion and this is where the plot thickens. And, and Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, Esther, look, if you don't do anything, we're all going to be dead. And don't you think that your life will be spared just because you're sitting in the queen's seat? If you don't do something, your life won't be spared. And Esther says, what am I supposed to do? I can't go to the king. We know how arrogant he is. We know what kind of guy he is. I can't go in front of this guy. If he doesn't raise his scepter and accept me, he'll kill me. And Mordecai tells her, you're going to just have to make that decision. What are you going to do? So we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think yourself to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, help me out church, for such a time as this. Now let me give you a couple of things of what Mordecai is communicating and things that we need to know. And here it is. Mordecai trusted that God is going to work out his plan no matter who he uses. You see it? Look, he said, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise. It's going to come. So church family, I want to, uh, to give you the faith of Mordecai that says God is going to accomplish his purpose. He is a providential God, a God who provides for his purpose to be done. That is who God is. And whether it's you or someone else, God's will will be done. This is the God we serve. However, there is a responsibility that he's given to each of us. And this is what I want you to hone in and think about this morning. Are you all with me? God's will will be done. Amen. But God has given responsibility to you and to me to be a part of his will being done. We are a part of that process. Y'all hear me? You are a part of that process. God is a providential God that we've established. His will will happen, but he is employing you to be a part of of doing what he's called you to do. 
God has set me as a father and a husband in my home. And he has appointed me to do the work to be done. If I do not gather the children, gather the family now at this point, every night together and say, let's pray, it's not going to happen. That's my job. That's my duty. I am one of the gears that turns for the wheels on the car to turn. God uses means to accomplish his purpose. It's not just magic. It doesn't disappear and appear like we understand magic. God uses people in his purpose. And that's what he's calling Esther to do. Esther, if you stand up, stand up for Jesus like we sang earlier. And you take a stand and say, I'm going to be a part of God's plan then he will use you as a part of his purpose. And that's what Esther ultimately decides to do. She decides to go in before the king to risk her neck. And God gives favor from King Ahasuerus to Esther. So let me stop for a moment. Y'all still with me? Y'all still with me? In what ways has God called you to risk your neck? Just think about it. The Christian life is not about ease and comfort. That's not what God has, that's not kingdom life. You know, we we looked at the kingdom. If, If life were about ease and comfort, Jesus would have had it, right? He didn't. Jesus has not called us to just live the easy life. He's called us to give the effort and be the gears that will turn the wheels in God's kingdom. What has God called you to do? Let me give you some examples of things that you can do. Fathers, gather your family together for prayer every day. Ladies, gather your family together for prayer. Church, be someone that the church is better because you're here. Does that make sense? Contribute in a way to the working of the church so that the church is better because you're the gear that's turning right. We have a fall outreach coming up shortly. And I hope and pray that each of you will be involved, that each of you will be a gear that turns. And some of you, it's picking up beanbags and handing it back to a child and saying, let's try again. For some of you, it's presenting clearly that Jesus Christ saves sinners that repent. For others, it's going to be putting together drinks. Others, it's going to be at a, at a trunk. Whatever it's going to be. Some of these are going to be building, uh, building Egyptian people so that we can, they can be part of our set design. What gear are we turning in, in the process of God and His work? Are you willing to put your neck on the line and and step out of that easy chair to say, I'm going to do some work? Uh, This church exists not to just sit, y'all. This is part of church, and it's an important part, but it's not the only part. God has not called us to sit or just to sing. He's called us to be a light, a city on a hill. And if we don't do that, we're not doing our job as a church. We have to put forth that effort. Well, I'm 
I'm out of time in our story this morning. Let me give you the rundown of the rest of the story. Ultimately, Haman uh, is destroyed. Uh, Esther, ris- Esther risks her life. Mordecai, they come up with a plan. And, and we're going to dig more into this tonight. If you want to come at 5 o'clock, we'll finish some of the story tonight. But at the end of the day, the Jewish people are saved. They're able to defend themselves. Praise God. And, and the story of Jesus Christ coming from the people of the Jews, the, God's working of his redemption plan In our picture, the redemption plan is not thwarted because God is a God of providence. And he then provided his son on a cross to pay for your sin and for mine. God is a God of providence. So let me walk away with with these few things for you. God is involved in every detail. There are evil plans that exist. There are evil ideologies that want to overcome you, your family, and this church. But God cares for you, and he has worked and wrought a plan of salvation. If you're here this morning, and you've never repented of your sin, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, I want to invite you. I'd love to talk with you more about that. What is the gospel of Jesus? And and the bottom line is this. Jesus saves sinners that repent. Any sinner that repents, no matter how sinful, dirty, how old or how young, Jesus saves sinners that repent. You can be saved today and you can be part of God's plan. Finally, let me close with this. Christian, are you owning the responsibility that God has put upon you? Are you doing your part? Are you turning in the gears of God's plan? Are you turning? Are you, are you locked and loaded and ready to go? Are you willing to be used by God in His purpose? And if you're not actively involved in ministry or, or serving in the kingdom of God, I want to challenge you to think, how can, how can God use me? God used Esther. God used Mordecai. We read the Bible, the stories are replete with examples. But God uses each one of us as well. Are you willing? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Esther. We thank you every day, Lord, for your providence. You have provided for us, Lord, every moment of every day. God, give us the, the, the love for you to respond in ways, to be faithful in the ways that you've called us to do, to be active, working in your kingdom, and to be a part of your providential plan in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Come to our time of response this morning.